Anytime I run across someone on the street asking me for money, I freeze because I'm not quite sure how to respond. Anyone else? I live near the off-ramp to Old Orchard Mall, and there's always, almost always someone there in the intersection when I'm getting off, walking up and down, looking desperate, asking for help. There's a rotating cast of familiar faces. There's a woman who always just looks miserable and just stands there. She doesn't even walk. She just stands there. There's a man named Keith who could barely say his name to me because of a medical condition in his throat that he can't really talk. There's a man who always commented on my VW Golf when I had it because he'd worked at the dealership at some point. And a number of others who all blend together with the cardboard sign proclaiming why they need help, usually ex-military. One person was a line cook who got, who've lost his job during COVID, etc. And of course, the signs always end with, God bless. As I said, I never know quite what to do when I'm face-to-face with people like this, and I've tried a few different strategies over the years. There was a a season in my life where I decided I would give money if I had cash, trying to take Jesus seriously when he says, give to everyone who asks. There's times where if I've had time, I've tried to buy food or a meal or a cold drink on a hot day. Those times are very small in number. There's times when I've asked their names and listened to their story when I'm stuck in line and I don't have cash. I have a friend who carries gift cards, who she gives to people instead of cash. And then, of course, there are the times that, for whatever reason, I smile and avert my eyes, or I pretend to look at my phone instead so I don't have to make eye contact, and I feel guilty the whole time, especially when I'm wearing my collar. I suspect we could all tell similar stories, and that we all wrestle with what do we do when we come face-to-face with someone who at least says they're in desperate financial straits. We know that just giving cash isn't necessarily always the right thing to do, but surely we should do something. What's my responsibility to those who are materially poor? Jesus gets right in our face with this question today, with a parable that shows us the spiritual weight of how we treat those who are financially poor. Now, if I'm honest, I see this parable, I saw this parable this week, and I went, ugh, not another one, Jesus. Didn't we just have one of these? Here comes the guilt. Seems like there'd be many other things we could focus on today in our community. But we can't get very far in Luke without talking about money. Robert Chow Romero points out that the New Testament in general talks about the poor or money one out of every ten verses. In Luke, it's one in seven. There is spiritual urgency in what we do or don't do with our money in the here and now, particularly with regards to those who are materially poor. It matters. How we treat the poor really, really matters to Jesus. And if that's the case, it probably should matter to us too. So even though it's uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable preaching this, you're uncomfortable hearing it, we better wrestle with it and wrestle and wrestle some more because that's where Jesus is. So let's dare to wrestle with this parable today. This parable in Luke 16 follows close on the heels of the parable that Deacon Ethan preached on. That was last week, right? I forgot to look. It's been a long week. Last week. So its themes are very similar. But there are some key verses in between what Deacon Ethan preached on last week and the parable today, particularly what our lectionary leaves out in verse 14. 
Jesus wraps up the parable from last week with his conclusion that you cannot serve both God and money. And then in verse 14, Luke tells us the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed him. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among humans is an abomination in the sight of God. Those verses form the framework for the parable in front of us today. Dana reminded us a couple weeks ago that it's always important in parables to remember who the audience is. Thank you, Dr. Dana. Well, here the audience is the Pharisees. And we're told they love money and that that love for money makes them seek to justify themselves when Jesus talks to them. That should sober us up. Our parable shows a vivid picture of how God despises what human beings prize so dearly. It's a parable of a dramatic reversal. We get so many of these reversals in Luke. Just think about the Magnificat. There's a rich man who ends up poor and a poor man who ends up blessed. Remember that in that culture, and often, if we're honest, in ours, riches were often seen as a sign of God's blessing versus poverty or illness being a sign of God's curse. So this really would have been a parable that was as startling and as offensive to the Pharisees as it would be to us. Maybe it is. It would be even more so if we could hear it with its original force. So let's talk this parable through. It starts very similarly to several other parables. There was a certain man. Well, this one is a very, very, very rich man. Church tradition often names him Dives, which is related to the Latin for rich. But it's important to note he's not given a name by Jesus. He's just a certain rich man. He is extremely wealthy. You think uh, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. This is a wealthy dude. He wears purple. That dye was super rare and really expensive. I read one commentator who said that Romans even had codes about who was allowed to wear purple. Is that true, Scott? Yeah. Same thing with the fine white linen that would have gone underneath it. This is designer clothing, expensive stuff, best you could find. Also, this guy is a feaster. Our translation puts it living in luxury. Well, it's really talking about having these elaborate feasts, not just on special occasions or birthdays, but every single day. Every single day. Think of the lobsters or whatever they ate that was fancy in Palestine. Probably should have looked that up. Imagine all the people coming in and out for those feasts, the family members, the people seeking patronage, the other, the peers, the rich people. Just imagine the infrastructure and ecosystem and expenditures it took just to maintain the daily feast. We're also told this man has a gate, which is both a way to keep the undesirables out and a signal that, again, this is like a, a luxury-gated community, a luxury home. There's the rich man. And then there's the beggar. Unlike the rich man, he is given a name. And he's the only person in one of Jesus' parables that's given a name. Lazarus. God helps. This man is destitute and powerless. The text says he was laid at the gate, almost more like he was cast at the gate. Someone got him there. Maybe he was unable to go elsewhere because of his health. Maybe he was abandoned. He's covered in sores. It makes me uncomfortable, that whole section. Not only is he destitute, but he's ritually unclean and in chronic pain. Everything has failed him. The system, his family, his body, all of it. He's hungry enough he'd eat the scraps from this table if the servants would bring them to him. But instead, the dogs get those. 
And then they add insult to injury. He has nothing and no one. He's unseen, unheard, unloved. A greater contrast between the two characters can hardly be imagined. And then comes the great reversal. Lazarus dies without ceremony. He's given no burial, which would have been shameful socially. But the angels treat him with special care. They receive him and carry him to be right next to Father Abraham, the special place at the great feast. The rich man dies and is buried, presumably with honor and speeches and feasting and mourning and all the things important people get when they die. We saw that with Queen Elizabeth recently. But when he wakes up on the other side, he is in Hades, the fiery underworld, in torment. A total reversal of what life was like on earth versus what life is like next. A picture of the spiritual truth of their earthly lives. Then we get some dialogue between the rich man and Father Abraham. He calls out, have mercy, Father Abraham. Send Lazarus with water. I'm burning up here. Notice two things here. First, he knows Lazarus's name. He knew him. He was not unaware of this beggar at his doorstep. And two, he still thinks of Lazarus as his inferior, someone he can order around, someone there to serve him. He doesn't even address Lazarus. Not everything has changed in Hades. Well, Abraham says, son, nope, I couldn't even change that if I wanted to. Plus, you got your good things. Look what you did with them. Lazarus got a bum rap. It's his turn. The rich man says, okay, fine. Well, at least send Lazarus. Again, look how he thinks he can just treat this guy. Send him to my brothers to warn him. He's looking outside of himself a little bit, but still not really, just about his family, wanting them to have some special treatment. Abraham says they have the same thing everyone has. They've got Moses and the prophets. That's enough. They have the scriptures. But, but if someone comes from the dead, they'll repent. And this is the point where we ask, repent from what? Abraham says if they don't listen to the Bible, they won't listen even if someone comes from the dead. And that's what we call foreshadowing. End of scene. A few observations about this parable. First, this is not a parable about the afterlife. So don't read it to figure out what comes after death precisely. That's not the point of the story. Some scholars even believe Jesus adapted a popular folk tale. There's a couple floating around at this time that are similar, including an Egyptian one in which the god Cyrus visits the underworld and sees a rich man who gets punished because of what he did in his life and a poor rabbi who gets rewarded. So, but if Jesus is adapting this story, his parable has a significant twist. Let's count characters. How many characters are there in this parable? Let's name them. Lazarus. Rich man, Abraham. And the five brothers. That's the twist. There's extra characters here, the five brothers. Jesus intentionally leaves us hanging at the end of this parable without really much of a punchline, but the question... Will the five brothers listen to Moses and the prophets and repent? The rich man's out of time. But there's still time for the five brothers and the Pharisees and us. 
This is a parable urging us toward how to live here and now. It's also not a parable about how to get into heaven. This parable can really bother us because it raises questions about grace and salvation, right? doesn't seem quite right to us that Lazarus would end up in the heavenly realm, the best spot in the heavenly realm, when we're not given any details about how he lived his life. Okay, this parable is not saying that rich people are bad and automatically condemned and that poor people are automatically virtuous. Remember, it's directed at the Pharisees, those who loved money and justified themselves. That's the point of the parable. So rather than worrying about why Lazarus ended up in the heavenlies, we need to sit in the discomfort of why the rich man ended up in Hades. To take in the spiritual weight of our earthly actions that scripture and Jesus consistently teaches. Again, it's not a parable about later, but about now. And directed at the Pharisees who loved money and justified themselves. So what did the rich man do wrong? We're not told he did anything particularly egregious. Really, he lived out the status quo of his social status and completely failed to love the poor neighbor literally at his doorstep. He ignored Lazarus and his need, literally probably stepping over him to get to his feasting. His heart toward Lazarus is the exact opposite of the heart of the father Jesus describes in the story of the prodigal son just a few verses before. Wrongs done and wrongs and things, things done and things left undone. In contrast to the rich man, it's clear in how he tells the parable that Jesus knows and loves this character of Lazarus. He gives him a name. He knows that he's hungry. He says he ended up at this gate not really by his own choice. He describes his pain. He knows that God cares for him. Jesus knows and loves Lazarus. The rich man, and by extension the Pharisees, does not. When we love someone, we care about what happens to them. We care about their physical and emotional needs. We want to be part of meeting them when we can. We want them to flourish. We cannot simply step over them and go on our way. Love hears the cries of the desperate and responds with compassion. This is what theologians are talking about when they refer to God having a preferential option for the poor. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Robert Chow Romero writes this, Although God loves all people equally, God expresses a unique love and concern for the poor because of their distinct suffering. Poverty is a scandal to God because God desires all his children to flourish and live with dignity. Like a loving father, God cannot stand idly by when one of his children is mistreated or oppressed, especially when they're being taken advantage of by another sibling. He must intervene on their behalf in the face of their suffering. To remain neutral would be to condone their abuse and the structures and circumstances that give rise to their suffering. God cares passionately about the suffering of the poor. The rich man doesn't. He cares only about himself, and it earned him damnation. There is spiritual weight 
and spiritual urgency in how we treat those who are materially poor. This is a hard word. It's probably not a surprise to you that Scripture teaches this. We know this. And the Pharisees did too. To me, the scariest part of this whole parable, this whole section, is the fact that Luke explicitly tells us the Pharisees couldn't hear Jesus or Scripture because they loved money. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is not a parable with easy answers. So if you're waiting for me to give the answers, I'm still figuring them out. This is a parable that invites us to wrestle with the spiritual weight and urgency of how we treat the materially poor. So as we turn toward ourselves, I'm going to offer three questions. It's a parable for wrestling and for questions. Three questions to help us turn our hearts to the Lord and seek his mercy as we wrestle. The first question is simply this. What gets in the way? What gets in the way of us actually caring for those who are poor? What gets in the way of us doing what Scripture teaches? Do we love money too much? It's so tempting to justify ourselves. You know, I get into this sermon and I'm like, how do I offer grace but not like, take out the force of this? Because it's hard. It is so easy to justify ourselves. The first thing is just to stop and try to be honest. We don't even have to do anything about it. Be honest before the Lord. Do we love money too much? Maybe we need to practice some painful discipline of giving. Maybe the barrier is more that some of us are just plain bad with money. Maybe your application point today will be to talk to someone, like Deb, and say, help me figure out my money so I can have the ability to give more to those who need it. Maybe you have a lot of internal fear about just not having enough for whatever reason, and that makes it hard for you to give. Maybe you can seek some spiritual direction to think about that, to turn that to the Lord, to gain the Lord's help in giving abundantly. Perhaps you are poor, or in a season when you don't have a lot of money to give to others. If so, I hope this passage reassures you that you are of special significance to the Lord and of equal value to your brothers and sisters who have more. What gets in the way? What gets in the way of me living out the call of Scripture to care for those who are poor? Lord, bless our honest wrestling. My second question for our wrestling is this. How do we imagine the good life? Because the rich man was living out what he imagined was the good life. Of course, it was a life of stuff, a feasting, a life centered around himself. But he was so shaped by that sociocultural imagination that even when he ended up in Hades, he couldn't break out of it. He's still thinking like he did on earth. He kept seeing Lazarus as down here. Each of us has an imagined good life. Is it shaped by Jesus? When we picture our perfect life, who is there with us? Who do we imagine will sit next to us in the kingdom of God? And my last question for our wrestling is, how do we view the poor? 
Do we view them as the poor? Or do we view them as a Lazarus? Men and women with names and stories and gifts for the kingdom of God. People can be poor for all sorts of reasons. Do we think people are mostly poor because of bad choices? Do we think they're lazy, scary, manipulative? Does it matter? Do we see those who have less as primarily people to help, which automatically places them kind of below us, or people who are our equals in the Lord in everything that matters? This parable can so easily become another give-to-the-poor push. In fact, in the medieval church, oftentimes there was a picture of Lazarus in rags being hounded by dogs above the boxes used to receive alms for the poor. Well, giving to those in need is good. But the problem is it's entirely possible for us to give to the poor without actually loving them and without changing any of the root conditions and dispositions that cause them and us harm. I'm thinking about this for us as we dive into Highwood. We need some thought and some learning about how to engage with our neighbors who have less in ways that um, aren't condescending. I haven't figured it out yet. How do I move from seeing the poor to seeing Lazarus, to loving Lazarus? One of my very specific applications for myself in due time is to read this book that Dana recommended to me called Toxic Charity, which is all about how we can have good intentions and do harm and how to not do harm. What does it mean, what does it look like to engage with the poor in ways that reflect the heart of Jesus? So maybe that would be an application point for you too. Uh, I would be more comfortable being up here as an expert on this. It should be clear to you at this point, I am not. I am a wrestler alongside you. This feels very intimidating to me, probably to you too. But here is the good news. Jesus was poor. He can teach us. He will teach us. Our collect for today talks about God's power shown through his mercy and praying, grant us the fullness of your grace so that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. That prayer holds grace and effort together, perfectly and beautifully. We need the Lord's grace in this. This is not a go-out-and-work-hard sermon. There might be things for us to do. There should be things for us to do. But we, most most of all, need the Lord's grace, which looks like coming to Jesus and saying, Okay, I'm wrestling. Teach me, Rabbi. Pour out your grace, O Lord, for these things are too hard for us. Show us where we, where I, love money more than my neighbor. Show us where in our guts we believe that somehow we're kind of better. Help us move from helping the poor to loving Lazarus. In your mercy we pray. Amen.
I know I threw out a lot of ideas today. Sometimes I do that, and I know it can be overwhelming. I'm going to encourage you to take a moment. We'll give maybe a minute of quiet to just write down one thing. One thing you want to carry with you, whether that's something to think about or something to do. So I'm going to have a minute to be quiet. Write down what is the one thing you want the Lord to speak to or help you remember out of what you've heard today. Come Holy Spirit. May it be, O Lord, according to your will. Amen.